Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're in the third Sunday of Advent in the Christian tradition. Reading the story of the people's return from exile is told in Ezra 1, 1-4 and 3, 1-13. We reflect on the varying roles of the exiles in this text, some of whom return to Judea to do the hard work of rebuilding the temple, while others remain in Babylon to support the rebuilding financially. We think about the resonances of this rebuilding with the story of Solomon's original construction of the first temple, recalling the former temple in all its glory, but also remembering a time when Israel worshiped God in the wilderness without a permanent building at all. And we ponder the generational experience in this text, some in the older generations weeping at the sight of the new temple foundation being laid, while others in the younger generation shout in jubilant praise. And through it all, we hear the refrain, God is good. God's graciousness for Israel lasts forever. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, the last time I saw you, we were in Nebraska together. We were. Oh, what a treat it was. It was great. It was great. It was great to be in person with you. It was great to be together with all these fine pastors of the the region. Yeah. Yeah. Really good time. So other than that, how are you? I have, I'm fine. I have a story, this title of which is Amy is Dumb. Hey, don't be mean to me. No, okay. It's Amy. not Amy's Dumb. It's Amy Lives in a Hole. Okay. That seems more reasonable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, someone at the retreat told me that I reminded them of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes. Now, I don't watch television, really. So I have heard of that show, but I don't, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. And so I have since watched a couple episodes and realized that when they said that, I was thinking of Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, yeah. Those are very different. Yeah. But Miss Daisy's also Jewish, isn't she? She is, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But she's like 90. Yeah, she was quite an old lady. Yeah, Mrs. And Mrs. Maisel, Maisel is not despite being lady. a Mrs. instead of a Miss, is not 90. They're just very different characters. They are. So anyway, I was glad I didn't remind them of a, an elderly. So you spent the whole weekend feeling, thinking that you were reminding them of an elderly Jewish lady? Driven, I, <laughs> driven around yeah, by Morgan yeah, Freeman? <laughs> yeah, I was like, maybe I should start dyeing my hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. that, I would take that as a compliment because Mrs. Maisel, she is spunky she is spicy. and she, yeah, yeah, she's, she's pretty yeah, awesome. I've I only watched show. two episodes, but um, yeah, she's she's a she's a vibrant character. She is, yeah. And now we can collect our royalties. No, is it royalties? What do you get when you advertise somebody's show? Because oh, I bet the li- the uh, viewing audience of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is going to like triple now that it has been mentioned on Bible Worm. Uh, probably. And maybe also Driving Miss Daisy. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> all people too. have watched these shows. I don't know. Yeah. I, don't know. I, I do think hole. you're probably a little late to that game, but but it's. <laughs> 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 yeah. Especially the Driving Miss right. Daisy game. That one, that one was like a while I ago. I know. I haven't seen that either. I just know that she's old. Well, the next time we do a retreat together, that'll be one of the optional movie activities. Night. Yeah, movie night. Yeah, <laughs> what has great. Amy missed in pop culture in the last 25 years? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. All right, Amy. Well, last time we were together, we were in Isaiah 40, which we recorded on our live podcast in Nebraska. This week, we are moving on to Ezra. The narrative lectionary has us in 1, 1 to 4, 3, 1 to 4, and 10 to 13 in good Bible worm fashion. We're just going to fill in that gap in the middle. So we're going to read not all of chapter one and two, but the other gap. So we're going to do one, (laughs) one to four, and then three, one to 13. Mm -hmm. Because I don't like part of that chapter is about the 
the rebuilding of the altar, and then part of it is about the rebuilding of the temple. And if you skip from the beginning of chapter three to the end, you kind of merge those two things. Mm. In my mind, they're important to keep them separate. Sometimes things that are important in my mind are not important like any place else. But <laughs> anyway. You have all the power here. So. But I have the power today. Yeah, yeah I do. Mm-hmm. You could just refuse to answer questions, I suppose. And then. That would be great. Mm-hmm. Great episode. Amy, what do we need to know to get us from Isaiah 40 to Ezra 1? Mm. Okay, here's a couple things that I would want people to know. So when we were in Isaiah 40, the the exile has happened, right? Uh, the, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem has happened. And maybe it's like at the very end of the exile, it seems that that text was written. And, and it's really sort of dealing with the emotional and theological fallout of, of the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and there was an exile. And it's, it's trying to sort of re, reorient people for this new proverbial chapter that is beginning. The book of Ezra offers us kind of a narrative account of what happened next. Mm. So we're moving back out of poetry into narrative. Historically, it describes things that were mostly happening around the 5th century BCE. So after... Let me give you a little historical context there. Persia, the Persian Empire, has now defeated the Babylonian Empire. And King Cyrus II is king. And he issues this famous proclamation encouraging the nations that are now provinces under the Persian Empire to establish their own temples in their homelands and live according to their own laws. There's a lot more sort of flexibility for the provinces within the Persian Empire to do their thing. And so Ezra is is describing what that looks like for the people of Jerusalem who have been exiled to Babylon and are now invited to come back and rebuild a temple. That's that's mostly what we're going to read today. But the the questions of the time, I mean, I won't go into too much, I guess, of the questions of the time, because we'll see what actually comes up in the text. But it's really, for me, it's really fascinating to watch how this generation sort of goes back and tries to sort of reclaim and start over yes. after this r- large disruption yes. <laughs> and create a sense of continuity, even in the at the face of some explicit discontinuity. It's, it's really, it's really interesting, really interesting book. Okay, what did I miss? Oh, no, that was great. I was, when you think about the sequence of the text that we've been in, Jeremiah 33 was kind of on mm-hmm. the front end of this destruction of Jerusalem mm-hmm. and was anticipating that sort of trauma. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 40 was written from the trauma itself, anticipating the possibility of renewal. And now mm-hmm. Ezra 1 to 3 is the people now back in the land on the other side of the exile trying to figure out how to start over so this sequence of texts is a really interesting sequence. And it's also in the Christian tradition, we've been reading these as this is this text today is for the third Sunday of Advent. So this sort of bracketing of the exile is also our way of thinking about, ex- about Advent through the narrative lectionary this year. So I just wanted to touch that. That's like, really that interesting well. to think about Advent in the light of exile and this sort of narrative of moving through exile. Yeah. Mm. The one other piece that's in there that you gesture to, and we'll see more directly, is sometimes we have the picture, at least I did, in my head of the exile as being the sort of like everybody from Judah, mm-hmm. Judea moved into exile and the land was empty and then they came back, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is kind of how the biblical text presents it in the, you know, in the main narrative. But in fact, there were people who remained in the land. And so one of the tensions that we'll see in this text is the people who are descended from those who went away into exile 50 years earlier are now coming back to the land. And one of the tensions is what is now the status of the people who just never left and the status of the people who are coming back. We're not going to get that all worked out in this text, but that is one of the things that's going to come up attention. It's going to come up in this text. Yeah. So we start with Ezra 1, 1 to 4, which is the proclamation of King Cyrus of Persia that you were mentioning earlier. So I'll start there, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. 
in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia's rule, to fulfill the Lord's words spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Persia's King Cyrus. The king issued a proclamation throughout his kingdom, it was also in writing, that stated, Persia's King Cyrus says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. If there are any of you who are from his people, may their God be with them. They may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And as for all those who remain in the various places where they are living, let the people of those places supply them with silver and gold and with goods and livestock, together with spontaneous gifts for God's house in Jerusalem. Hmm. Amy, the first thing I want to ask about is, I mean, in verse one, this text is claiming that, I think, the, basically the rule and decisions of the king of Persia are being motivated by the God of Israel. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about that sort of yeah. view of international politics, I guess? Yeah. Um, yeah, it sure, it sure the heck is, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who just who like brings on all this destruction, at least to some extent, is seen, I think, in Jeremiah as a tool of God in bringing about necessary destruction. God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant in, I think it's Jeremiah 29. Mm. And then actually mm-hmm. to, to Cyrus as my Messiah. That's in right. Isaiah 45. Yeah. Isaiah 45. Yes. And Isaiah 44, we get like, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purposes. There is definitely a sense during this time period that God is working through foreign kings in order to bring God's will about. I, I mean, I guess we could sort of try to wrestle with what, what, how that came to be the belief or whatnot, but it is there. And I mean, I could imagine that, like, you can't imagine that you have this all-powerful king. And yes, it's true. It is that the the God of Israel, but but all these things are happening to Israel. And so you, they have to work out in some way. Right. How does their omnipotent God interact with history, like relate to, to the history that is happening to them? And it is an international history. It, is, it would be surprising if the historical Cyrus, I think, thought of himself as having gotten his power from the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. But here Cyrus actually, like in the biblical telling, Cyrus in verse two says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So Cyrus himself here, it's not that God is sort of mysteriously working behind the scenes in, in this telling, but that Cyrus himself is aware. God gave me my power and therefore I have this obligation to the people of Israel. Wonder, I don't think there's a way to really know this. I wonder that the extent to which that is true versus that is the memory of Israel about right. what King Cyrus says. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know how to get to that question, but that is certainly those are the words that are being put in King Cyrus's mouth right now. Yeah. The other thing that's here, since we were just in we were just mentioning Jeremiah where we were two weeks ago, is Ezra tells us that this is all happening to fulfill the words spoken by Jeremiah, Mm -hmm. which was, I guess, that the people will be in captivity for 70 years when your 70 years are finished. Yes. So I'm just, I don't, I mean, I'm just interested in the idea that all of this is viewed as, you know, Jeremiah already told you this 70 years ago, and now you can see it coming into fruition. That sense of the history, what seemed like, I don't know, like what, when we when we read that in Jeremiah, in the middle of the destruction, you think, oh my, this is the end of everything. Yeah. And so that idea that 70 years from now, it's going to be restored seems impossible. And then here you have Ezra saying, no, 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 Jeremiah was actually right. I guess yeah. it gives some sense of, I mean, you were saying that earlier, like the vicissitudes of history or the like, uh, the traumas of community life, they have a, a, a rhythm to them or a reason to them. Mm-hmm that's been given to us in the biblical text, if we have eyes to see it. 
Yes, absolutely. And I I think I see it also is that I feel like Ezra, I mean, all the biblical authors, but Ezra especially, I feel like is really at pains to make explicit the continuity between what happened before the exile and what is happening now, lest people think exactly what you just said, which is, well, there was <laughs> there was a you know community and a religion and a temple, and that time is over. So in in that understanding, Ezra is sort of accepting the Jeremiah interpretation that the exile itself was punishment for straying from the covenant, and it was a time bound punishment. Yes, mm-hmm. and now the time for punishment is over, as we saw in Isaiah forty. Yeah. The first thing that is commanded here is to, I mean, the language here is to build him a house at Jerusalem and Judah. This is the reestablishment of the temple. Yes? Mm -hmm. I assume so. Yeah. This might be a silly question, but why is that the first thing? Mm. Wow. That's a good question. I mean, it's a... It's actually a really good question because the the religion that we're talking about here, the religion of Israel certainly predates having a temple. Right. And even the life of the people Israel within the land of Israel and within Jerusalem predates having a temple. Right. But I did get the sense, especially, you know, from Isaiah, that the the temple theology, like the idea that um, it was important to have that uh, like visual representation of God's especially present holiness in that place, had become really important in the tradition in a way that I, I don't think it always was, mm-hmm. but it was right before the destruction, at least. When you, if you imagine the situation in Jerusalem, like it was devastated by the Babylonian army 50 years earlier. It's, it was besieged for three years. The wall was breached and knocked down. The temple was destroyed and burned. So the people are going, I mean, my understanding from reading Ezra and Nehemiah is that it's pretty much just been left that way mm-hmm. for a half a century. And so the temptation might be to go back and like, I don't know, clean up a little bit or rebuild the wall or- Do something more practical. (laughs) Yes, like reestablish, you know, businesses or something so the economy can run strong or what, you Mm -hmm. know, I sound a little bit like George Bush there, but you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like there could be other priorities, but here it's the first thing, the first, first thing is go home and reestablish the temple. Yeah. We get two groups of people then that Cyrus addresses. One in verse three, some of you go to Jerusalem and build the house of the Lord. Those of you who want to stay where you are, send them silver and gold, goods and livestock and gifts for God's house. It's just like the, the tendency is to think that at the end of the exile, everybody was so excited to go home and they all ran home. But that's not the way it happens in the text. And it's not the way it happened historically. Some people do go back and do the work on the ground. Some people stay where they were and they are instructed here to give support. I'm just interested in your reflections on those two separate groups of people. It's so, um, yeah, this is where Ezra starts getting really interesting for me because like, as, as we were saying before, like it's, it's sort of easy to, kind of skip over the the years of the exile and imagine everyone's just in waiting. Right. Like like time freezes and you're just waiting to be able to go back to Jerusalem and nothing happens in Jerusalem and nothing happens in Babylon. But in fact, Jeremiah very clearly told the people when you are in Babylon, live your lives. Yeah. Like you should plant a garden and have a home and have a family and do what you can to contribute to the society in which you are living. That is the best thing you can do. And now it's been, you know, 70 years, 50, whatever. It's been enough, enough time that there are many people, I would imagine, who were born 
born in exile. That is what they have known. Oh, sure. Maybe their life there is okay. I mean, I say this as a Jew living in America, like life in, in diaspora is, it's a thing. Yeah. And so not all of them wanted to go back. That's so important. And this is like, there had been Jews living outside of the land before now, Mm -hmm. but this is the first sort of moment that the diaspora is really a thing and like navigating like what does it mean yeah like should everybody go home like is it expected that you should be in judah yeah here this is king cyrus talking right so i don't know what his authority is for the jewish people but it seems to be now understood that there are sort of two legitimate ways of being involved in this in this people yeah which is huge i think it's huge 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 this reminds me a little bit, I mean, I'm sort of leaning forward into today, but I, I, I'm involved with two different worshiping communities. One of them is a very small group that is serving meals and doing things for our friends on the street and like handing out blankets and like engaged in the on the ground day-to-day life with people. And one, which is in a wealthier part of town where, you know, everybody's wearing a suit when they come to worship and they're not involved in the sort of nitty gritty. And it's interesting, like I can sometimes be a little judgmental of people who don't get their hands dirty doing the work of the community. And this text is such an interesting one. It challenges me because it seems to be suggesting that there is a legitimate role, which is like some people are there doing the work, like they're on the ground rebuilding the temple. But it is important that there are people who are back in Babylon who are working in their shops and making their money and sending their resources to the community for the work of the temple. Otherwise, mm. the people that were in the land would have nothing to work with. So I, this text is important for me in a way that I don't really, I don't really love yeah. it because I yeah. like. Being yeah, a it makes judgy. you uncomfortable, but you uncomfortable. but you see it. Yeah, yeah, I see you in there. Now, yeah. That that's a really helpful way to think about the second part of this, which is, as you just raised up, it's not that the people who don't go back to Jerusalem, it's not that Cyrus says, do what you want. Like, right. <laughs> you can go back or don't go back. That, yes, people go back or they don't go back. But if you don't go back, there's still an expectation that you are going to support the endeavor, exactly. in this case, financially. Right. So different people have different roles in this rebuilding. Yes, yeah. exactly. Hi, my name is John Weicker, and I am the Associate Pastor for Youth and Their Families at First Presbyterian Church of Durham, North Carolina. I am a Bibleworm supporter at the Bibleworm supporter level, $48 per year. And I do that not because we're on the narrative lectionary or even because I preach that often, although when I do preach and the texts line up, I certainly use the podcast. I actually use Bibleworm as my own personal devotion for the week. I'm someone who misses the deep theology and close reading of texts that I got to do a lot of in seminary. And in Bobby and Amy's work, I found that again. And so I listen on Monday mornings on my way over to church and then Monday afternoons on the way back as a way to prepare for the week, to do ministry, and to love Jesus and serve. I hope you'll join me in becoming a Bible Worm supporter too. And now back to this week's episode. So we're moving down then to Ezra chapter three. Ezra chapter two, if you want to read it, is just a list of people and how many people came from each family. It is a very, like the fact that they cared about that is fascinating. The actual reading of Ezra two is kind of mind numbing. Yeah. But like they're making a careful accounting of all the people who belong to them. Mm. One thing that I just want to pull out of that is that in chapter two, verse 64, you don't often see verse 64s. (laughs) The whole assembly Uh that went back to Jerusalem numbered 42,360 plus their like attached people. That's a very specific number. And also like, it's a, it's not nobody. And it's also not an enormous number of people who have traveled back. Yeah, no, it's true. I think when the Israelites leave Egypt, doesn't it say it's something like 600? 600,000 men of fighting age, I think it is. 
Yeah. So, so then when you think really of their wives and children, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. It's a small remnant. So moving then to Ezra chapter three, I'll read verses one through seven. When the seventh month came and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered together as one in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, Josadak's son, along with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, Shaaltiel's son, with his ken, started to rebuild the altar of Israel's God so that they might offer entirely burned offerings upon it, as prescribed in the instruction from Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundations because they were afraid of the neighboring peoples, and they offered entirely burned offerings upon it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening offerings. They celebrated the festival of booths as prescribed. Every day they presented the number of entirely burned offerings required by the ordinance for that day. After this, they presented the continual burned offerings, the offerings at the new moons and at all the sacred feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who brought a spontaneous gift to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to present entirely burned offerings to the Lord. However, the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar wood by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, according to the authorization given them by Persia's King Cyrus. Mm. I mean, there's so much here in terms of dates and festivals and times of the year and times of the month. A little bit of it is elusive, I think, to a reader who is not immersed in those sorts of celebrations. So I'm, I'm interested in your sort of take on why these things matter. But the first thing I want to ask you about is we get twice, first in verse one, when the seventh month came, and then again in verse six, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to present entirely burned offerings to the Lord. So can you talk to me about the importance of the first day of the seventh month? I have two resonances in my head with this this season when they're they're making these offerings and sort of picking up on old traditions. One, as it mentions in here, the festival of tabernacles or booths or Sukkot, as we would call yeah. it now. And at least according to Chronicles, uh, Second Chronicles, and I should have checked to see whether this is true in Kings also, that's when the dedication of Solomon's temple yes. also took place. That's right. And so I think, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, I think that they really are at Ezra's at great pains to draw out the continuities. And, and I just read this sort of seeing, you know, there's a, an idea that's prominent in, in Jewish tradition now. And I think in biblical times and, and maybe in, in your faith tradition too, that like time isn't quite linear. It's cyclical. Yeah. And so I get this strong sense that like we have cycled back to like, it's like a, I picture it sort of like a spiral. So it's not like you go back in time, but you're sort of, you are fundamentally aligned with the building of the first yes. temple. Just, yeah, in, in sort of the details of the calendar here. Now, I, I said there were two associations I had, but then I kind of smushed them both together. They both... <laughs> <laughs> they both are are sort of uh, calling calling up this memory of Solomon's temple. So I'm glad you mentioned that first that Chronicles reference. I checked the Kings reference, and you're right there. Also, it's in the seventh month. It's called Ethanim there, which is actually the Hebrew name of the seventh month before they were in Babylon, and it sort of shifted over to what is now Tishrei. And so, but it's the same time. It's the seventh month, and so that connection. And what that draws out for me narratively is in that first Kings eight reference, that is a day of pageantry and celebration. And this long time, you know, we've been talking about having a temple since David's time. And now finally, after many years of construction, here's this glorious temple and this everybody's gathered and Solomon's making his dedication. When you connect that then to this Ezra text, which is taking place at the same time and around the same celebration, but what you're looking at is the rubble of that first temple Mm -hmm. and 46,000 people are there and it's just a shadow of its former self. And so there is a celebration here, 
But there is also this, when you connect that cyclical time, you're connecting back to a time period in which things were much more profound, much more fancy. Yeah. And so like both, there's a hopefulness there about it, but there's also this, I'm sh- there's this disappointment that must be there as well. Mm. Yeah. The first of Tishrei is also Rosh Hashanah. Is that is that true? Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> I don't know if that is, it doesn't. It really soft sells it here. Like it, what it cares about is Sukkot, but it, like this is taking place on Rosh Hashanah, and so I'm just curious. Does that matter? Or it matters to me, like it, I notice it as an outsider to the tradition. I don't know if it matters from the tradition itself. That's so interesting. You know, I feel like. Rosh Hashanah is sort of a weird holiday biblically. Like it's the the day of blasts, of shofar blasts. Yeah. <laughs> it's not named as the new year. The new year is thought of as Passover during this time. Mm. And and I, yeah, I I had not, I, I was so caught up in the Sukkot reference. I hadn't thought about Rosh Hashanah. And I don't really know what, I don't know what Rosh Hashanah would have meant to them at that time. But mm-hmm. that is really really interesting to think about in terms of at least the way we think about Rosh Hashanah now, which is that at least in the modern observance of Rosh Hashanah, it is uh, seen as the day of sort of the the celebratory re-enthronement of God as king. And so, uh, you know, I was thinking about your question from earlier, why is building the temple the first thing that you would do? I was just thinking about sort of what's all, the way that the the discourse of the text has all been caught up with like what's the most powerful empire and this sort of like human kingships that are surrounding them and sort of wondering at that model in their face like in the world that that our our most powerful entities need these grand structures to celebrate their glory and so all of that just sort of for me just enriches enriches some of the background, some of the context yeah. of why people would, would want to be doing this at this time. Yeah. Amy, we've been using the language of, and it's, I mean, it's Cyrus's language. We didn't make this up, that the first <laughs> thing is to rebuild the temple. But in fact, what we're looking at right here mm-hmm. is the rebuilding of the altar mm-hmm. first, and then the beginning to actually practice the sacrificial observance of all of these festivals while the temple itself is still in ruins. And so we get that notice in verse six that the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid, even though they're doing all these other things. So the first thing is the reestablishment of worship in the middle of this rubble. Yeah. In verse three, it says they set up the altar because they were afraid of the neighboring peoples and they Mm. began offering burned offerings. So it seems like this, Setting up of the altar before you build the temple is a, something about anxiety about the surrounding people, I yeah. guess. Can you, how do you understand that? I mean, it's such a fascinating and it's a fascinating detail that the text gives us. I mean, I guess I imagine that the people are, there. there is tension with whatever peoples are in the land already, whether those are Judean people who were not exiled. You know, as we said, like time didn't stand still. There were people just like the Judeans had a life in in Babylon, the people in Jerusalem had a life in Jerusalem. And now they see these people who are returning as maybe unwelcome (laughs) in this land that they've had to themselves, which just has such weighty... uh, modern resonances but but in the in the context of this story i guess i imagine that the people who have returned are a little bit afraid mm-hmm. and so maybe they they feel safer if they're able to call sort of directly upon their god or yeah. have that that traditional ancient connection to their god that's how i read it that's really helpful. That's how I read it too. I think that there, the thing that matters is the reestablishment of the worship of the God of Israel. Yes, that's the point of the temple. Though you know, like right. the temple's beautiful and great, but the point of the temple is to house the ritual. Yes, 
And so here that what they've done is they've found a way to have the ritual, even though the building is not there in any sort of, I mean, it is there in a crumbled fashion, but yeah. is that right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. We get a lot here about different kinds of offerings, the burned offerings, the morning and evening, the new moon offerings. And so, I mean, the way that I've read that is just like what it is saying is the first thing they did was they rebuilt the temple and then they started doing all of the main elements, even they didn't worry about the rubble around them. They just started. Yeah. Is that how you read that? Yeah. And and I, you know, just to sort of, I mean, maybe this sort of goes without saying, but the the altar comes before the temple throughout biblical tradition, like the, you know, and there are a lot of comparisons between Ezra and Joshua too, sort of leading the people back into the land. And in, in that case too, of course, that the altar comes before the temple, but Bobby, I can't help thinking about what this all would have been like for the people who are coming back from Babylon. Like, do we imagine, how many of them do we imagine have experienced this before? I mean, I don't think they were offering these sacrifices in Babylon. Yeah. So I don't know, had they been longing to do this this whole time? And it was just sort of like, they are so relieved to finally have this really intimate connection, or is this all feeling really kind of foreign? And there's a lot of language in here is like they did things as it is written as it is prescribed oh, like they're yeah. following all the rules like how, it, i just wonder like ritual is ritual because you've done it before but if you've never done it before i don't know i just wonder what it felt like I don't know what it felt like that's such an interesting observation amy we're going to get here in a minute when we read this last section of text that there yeah, yeah, that yeah. there were people who had been there before but it yeah. seems like there were a lot more I mean, they've been gone the earliest, I mean, the latest exile was 586. And now we're, I mean, we're fully 50 years later. Yeah. And so you would imagine in 50 years, most of the people who had been in Judah have died. And what we're talking about are their children and grandchildren, Yeah. maybe great-grandchildren who have heard all these stories, I guess, passed down like Deuteronomy had said. But you're exactly right. They have not experienced Judah. They have not experienced the temple. They have not experienced sacrifice. So they're engaged in all these rituals of earlier generations, but not fully understanding them. I had not made that connection to the, as it is written, as it is prescribed, but but you're exactly right. It's just so like, it's being presented here as like, we can finally do this, Yeah. which maybe was their experience, but it also, this was, it was new. Yeah. One of the things that's helpful to me in that comment too is I often think of the return from exile as this like triumphant moment. Yeah. But when you really think about it, it is is people who are, their home is someplace else. And a lot of them didn't come back and they're afraid when they get there and it is in ruins when they arrive. And it doesn't seem to feel very triumphant when you sort of read just a little bit under the surface of the text. Yeah. The other resonance with the Festival of Booths, you, you were talking about the connection with Solomon. and But you've referred a number of times, I think, in an important way to like, there was a time before the temple. And that's the way Israel sort of functioned. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the Festival of Booths itself is remembering that time, right? When there was yes. the wandering through the wilderness and the setting up of temporary uh, shelters for the people, but also worshiping God in the tabernacle, which could then be folded up and moved. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, there is that sort of, not just let's remember Solomon's temple, but also let's remember that there was a time in the past when there wasn't a temple and everything was mobile. And the biblical tradition remembers that often. We saw that in Hosea. Remember when you were my little child and I just brought you out of Egypt and what a good time we had together in, in the wilderness, which may not be how the book of Numbers reads exactly, but there was that sense of yeah. a special relationship when there was not a temple. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. We are remembering the scrappy days. Scrappy days. Because it's time to be scrappy again. These days are ours. Scrappy days. <laughs> 
That was a real throwback. I just, <laughs> I just revealed my. True As age. it was written. Mm-hmm. In the what decade? Hey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Once you have once you have made a Fonz reference, I think it's probably time to move on. Is that is that what you're thinking? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I just would again to to point out just one other point of connection. I think is trying to make with the building of Solomon's Temple, the introduction of here the Sidonians and oh, the yeah. Tyrians and paying them with food and drink and oil to bring this. Like they really are, as it, to the greatest extent possible, they are trying to recreate the building of Solomon's temple. But I really take to heart, and I think it's really important to keep imagining the situation they're actually in and what it actually looked like where they were as opposed to what it looked like back in First Kings when Solomon yeah. was doing this. That's just a really complex picture of what's happening. That's so interesting, Amy, that they're simultaneously pressing forward with what they've got in the moment but they're also looking backwards, trying to recreate some past in a very tangible way. They're doing both of those things at the same time. That, mm. That's, in, that's yeah. important. Yeah, I'm sort of leaning into one of those more than the other one. <laughs> so that was a helpful corrective for, uh, for me. All right, so picking up then in verse eight. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, Shaaltiel's son, and Jeshua, Josedek's son, and the rest of their kin, the priests and the Levites and all who had come from the captivity to Jerusalem made a beginning. They appointed Levites 20 years old and above to oversee the work on the Lord's house. Then Jeshua with his sons and kins, Cadmiel and his sons, Binui and his sons, the sons of Judah, along with the sons of Hinadad, the Levites, and their sons and kin, collaborated to supervise the workers in God's house. When the builders laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests, clothed in their vests and carrying their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, arose to praise the Lord according to the direction of Israel's King David. They praised and gave thanks to the Lord, singing responsively, He is good, his graciousness for Israel lasts forever. All of the people shouted with praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and heads of families who had seen the first house wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this house, although many others shouted loudly with joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, because the people rejoiced very loudly. The sound was heard at a great distance. So, Amy, the first thing we get here in verse 8 is the timestamp in the second month of the second year after their arrival at God's house. So, we have some time has passed. Mm-hmm. Since we set up the altar, how long has passed as you as you understand it? We're we like five or six months down the line. I had not done that math, but I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> we were in the seventh month of the first year. Now we're in the second month. And the thing I'm not yeah. sure about is whether the second year means the second year after they arrived or the second year, like the second month mm-hmm. of the Jewish year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. after their arrival. Anyway, so it's been a little while, but it has not been an enormous amount of time. We get the beginning of the work on the temple. We get a lot of names here. Zerubbabel, who is a descendant of David. Mm -hmm. Jeshua, who is a descendant of the high priest. Mm -hmm. We get the language of Levites. And then I was just struck by the way the CEB translated in verse 9. They collaborated to supervise the workers in God's house. Can you just talk a little bit about like who all these different people are or the like groups of people are? I mean, okay. So what is most striking to me here is that I, I feel like it's presenting this, you know, combination. of Zerubbabel is not the king because they're, you know, a province of the Persian empire right. now, but he is the Davidic governor. Yes. <laughs> And, you know, the priest is in the traditional lineage of the priesthood and the Levites traditionally are the folks who are, I don't know, that uh, <laughs> the helpers, the custodians, the whatever, the, you know, they I call them the roadies, the roadies. Yeah. That sort of do the work of, of the temple that is not the work that's specifically limited to the priests. I just feel like it's a really beautiful and idyllic and sort of 
in a way, it's like a throwback to say like, this is how how it's all supposed to go. Although in reality, it was not used. There are very few references earlier in the biblical text to these groups working together so well. So it's almost like a throwback to some idyllic past that was never that idyllic. Yeah. Which we also do now, like as we're trying to, (laughs) you know, like as we're trying to sort of feel like we're in the lineage of something, sometimes we clean up the story that we're (laughs) back to yeah for sure that's 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 what that part made me think no i i like that a lot so they're collaborating and it's in this idyllic way in which they maybe have never really collaborated in the past there's a lot of tension in the biblical text between the priests and the levites and yeah like rebellions and all and all sorts of things and here everybody seems to be committed to this one this one task the number 20 years old is sticking out to me I don't know if that matters at all. It just strikes me as young and like, in my tradition, we have so much trouble, like including young people in the collaborations, like truly young people. Like I'm 51 and I am still considered a young person in my tradition in some way. And I'm like, you know what? And like any other, in any other world, like I'm squarely on the downslope of middle age. And so, I don't know, I just, uh, I, I got kind of excited when I was like, look, there's 20-year-olds who are invited into the collaboration. No, I mean, I think that's true. And I think that that had a different resonance in a different, you know, period oh, yeah, of time, for sure. Yeah. for sure. But I do think as we're reading this as modern folks, it is, you know, it's, this will become all the more true as we sort of read on. But like seeing the interaction of different generations in this moment is is really important and saying like they put the 20 year olds in charge of it and not the community elders yeah you know so they've now laid the foundation of the temple and so it's just the foundation right the whole like structure is going to be many years in the in the building but they've got the foundation laid and they have this full on celebration the priests and their vestments and the trumpets and Mm. their the whole community is gathered singing, he is good. His graciousness Mm -hmm. for Israel lasts forever. I don't, I mean, I just, I'm trying to picture that in my mind. I'm like, what that, like I keep thinking back to first Kings eight and the, like the first time we celebrated the building of the temple and and how different this is. Can you talk a little bit about that imagery of the celebration of the, foundation? I mean, the way that I think about it, once there's a foundation, it feels real. Like it feels like this is really happening. We really are back in this land that, I mean, I'm going to, I don't know actually what, I'm going to assume that they've been longing to be back in the land. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that part, but it really feels like they're at this moment of like, it feels pretty miraculous, like yeah. this new beginning. Like, though Jeremiah said it would be 70 years, you don't know when you're, yeah. you know, you don't know. And they have endured, uh, the people as a whole have endured a great trauma and have been away from this sacred land, this sacred homeland of theirs. And so to be back in it and to be able to pause at the very beginning, like the very beginning of the rebuilding and be grateful to be starting over. I mean, in some ways it makes me think like you, it's kind of like cliche, but you don't really appreciate things until they're gone. But I think there is a different layering to it now. Like there's a different weightiness recognizing that even once it is established, it is not a given that it's just going to be there. And so just having the foundation of it, I could see that as a really meaningful, poignant, moving, celebratory yeah. moment. We get this imagery in those last couple of verses that, I don't this image has just stuck with me since we talked about this four years ago. Yeah. Which is the mix of emotions mm-hmm. that the people are experiencing. And the biblical text, which is very reticent about emotions, You know what I mean? Like in the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac or almost doing so, we have no idea what Abraham was feeling because the biblical text doesn't talk to us about feelings very much. But here you have this kind of long description 
of people shouting with praise and then others who had seen the first house weeping aloud while others shouted with joy and you couldn't distinguish the sound of the one from the other. Can you just talk me through that image, weeping and shouting and the mixture of those? You know, I'll tell you, Bobby, when I first read it this time around, I read it as like weeping with joy. Mm. But that is not how the rabbis read this text. Mm. They read it as weeping with weeping. (laughs) I think I just see this moment as like the pinnacle of 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 all the big feelings, like of tremendous grief at what was lost and sort of the awareness of what was lost standing in the place where it was lost and memories of the grandeur that was. And also memories of, I almost want to say like the, the innocence, like that, that sense that the temple will stand forever. The temple cannot be destroyed. This is the one reliable thing in the world that's gone. Even as they Mm -hmm. rebuild, that's gone. Yeah. And I wonder if there's like relief mixed in there that they are, that they're back in this space and it's not gone forever. And there's an opportunity to start over. And then maybe that blissfully somewhat more naive joy of the younger generation that, that hasn't, doesn't have all that pain attached to it, but is just getting a new a new beginning, this thing they've been hearing about all their lives, they finally get to do and and yeah. be part of. And it's not just this story that's passed down. They get to be part of the story. Mm. It's just, I mean, it's just, it seems like such a, it, like big in every way, big in every dimension yeah. kind of moment. It's so interesting to me that you read that weeping as joyful. Yeah. And I read it as weeping, as sorrow. I think I was primed a little bit that way by the CEB, which says they wept, although many, although many others shouted loudly. Mm-hmm. But in the Hebrew, it's just a ve. It's just a conjunction, which can be interpreted. It has such enormous spaciousness, mm-hmm. I, although I think is a reasonable way to read it. But you could just read it as and. Some were weeping and others were shouting. And so, like, I love that ambiguity of the, like, you can't tell in the text whether the weeping was joyful or sorrowful. Maybe people could not tell in their bodies. That's what, yes. Whether the weeping was sorrowful or joyful. Yes. So many moments in life that, like, you weep and it's joy and sorrow and sadness. Like, my spouse's family they are so sweet every time we all get together and when we're leaving, they hug and then they cry and then we all get in the car and then we all get out of the car and we go and we hug and we cry and it's so beautiful. And it's this, like, it's exactly that. Like we are, they're so glad that they're together and they're also aware that anything could happen and they might not be together again in the same way for whatever reason. And so the weeping holds all of that. And I kind of read this weeping similarly, like the, yeah. the weeping holds sorrow for the past and joy about the present and uncertainty about the future. Yeah. Mixed in with these shouts of joy. I love that, Bobby. And I love in particular that you that you mentioned like, we don't know what's going to happen after this moment. And I can imagine for the generation that saw the first temple being destroyed, they're keenly aware (laughs) of the things that can happen, you know? It is interesting that it's the older priests and Levites specifically who are said to be the ones weeping. And maybe it's that awareness Mm -hmm. of what could happen or what has happened or a sense of relief or a sense of sorrow that this thing that has been built is such a pale comparison to what was there before. Yes. The other thing that I like is that last verse that no one could tell the sound of the one from the other. Yeah. So it's not like the weepers are, you know, like on one side and the shouters are on the other and they're like upset with each other. Like, why are you happy? We're sad. Or why are you sad? We're happy. It's just like the people make a noise. And the backdrop of it all is 
singing responsively, God is good, God's graciousness for Israel mm-hmm. lasts forever. Which comes from, which is in more than one psalm. Yeah. And is just all over the place in Jewish liturgy. Can like, you talk a little bit about that? Like that, the use of that in your tradition? Oh gosh. I mean, the use of it in my tradition. I mean, it, it, it's just all over the place. And I, like, I could yeah. sing you five different musical settings for it off the top of my head. Like it's said at the, the new moon, Hallel. It's said on Shabbat mornings. It's said like, I mean, it's just the fundamental, like, praise God for God is good. God's, yeah. like, loving generosity, openness is eternal, is forever. Yeah. And I feel like that eternity moment here feels so real. Like, the yeah. building was not forever. Yeah. And being in the land was not forever. But God's love is forever. And so maybe this time it's forever, but there's also a recognition that really what, you know, we, in Isaiah 40, we talked about how like the thing that stands is God's word. God is the thing that stands. And there's a recognition of the fragility of everything else. And it gets a little complicated when you mix it up with ritual because then it's sort of like, well, is that God's thing or a human thing? But I just feel like those are particularly poignant words to say at this yeah. Moment. That's so helpful. The other thing that I love about those words is that they can be said in circumstances ranging mm. from jubilant excitement to deep sorrow. Mm-hmm. And they are none, they are no less true in either case. And so the words that they say embrace the complexity of the emotions. Like there is no expectation here that everybody ought to be feeling one thing or the other in order to say the common words, Mm. but you can say the common words affirming what is fundamentally true, no matter how you're experiencing the current moment. Mm. It's really good liturgy. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. that. Amy, is there anything else you want to make sure we lift out of this text as a text? No, I just want to sit and stew in that image for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I don't have anything else to say about it. Sadly, in the context of Bible Worm, you get 12 seconds to stew in that image before I ask you, <laughs> <laughs> where do you take that image or this text as a whole and connect it to life today? This text has me thinking so much about Connections between the generations and the different experiences that different generations within our communities have and the ways to use, use that, that are really helpful and informative and the ways to use that, that maybe can feel not so (laughs) helpful sometimes. I mean, I think that Ezra's referring back to these ancient texts so much for me, like sort of reminds me how powerful it can be to know the history of your people mm. and partic- you know, in moments of celebration, but also in moments of not celebration and, you know, re- times that they had to be really resilient and times that they had to be scrappy and to know that you are not the first generation, you're not the first one experiencing this thing and and this is not the end of the line. On the one hand, I think that's really really helpful. And on the other hand, I think it's really important that they that it's that it is the 20-year-olds who are being put in charge of supervising this and there's something forward-looking here like yes, this is old but it's also new. Yeah. And to try to let it be both things. And then that image at the end of like everyone just sort of holding this moment in the way that they do but being in community with each other, not in competition with each other, no one has to carry the day. They can all feel all the things. It just for me infuses so much more meaning and depth into the moment to, to create these ritual moments that let people uh, let people be where they are and let people connect the way they connect instead of telling them how they're supposed to feel about it or yeah. or making a proclamation that this is a joyous moment. You're supposed right. to be joyous. It's a really, it's, this is a tender and complicated moment for the people, I think. And, and I, I love the way that 
the text just sort of puts that out there for us with this description at the end. It's not all trumpets and cymbals and finally everything's awesome now. Yeah. It's um it's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Like in, in this sort of round two going through with the temple and how to sort of live as a community and now not all Israel has come back and it's just it's more complicated the second time around. But that feels really real to me. Yeah. I think I'm in a similar place with this text and thinking about this text in Advent, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. in the Christian tradition is the beginning of the new cycle, right? It, we don't talk about it as a new year really, but it but it is. And so this text taking place in the new year, like I think the resonance there is really strong. What I'm thinking about in my own context is that, you know, I'm a Presbyterian Christian and our community was very strong 50 years ago. And it is not certain what the future holds for us. And that complicated emotional sense of sometimes looking back at what was and feeling Mm -hmm. sorrow, Mm -hmm. sometimes looking forward at what could be and experiencing joy. And that, that those are both embraced in this text and that those can both be embraced in one community that we can all say together, God is good. God's graciousness lasts forever. Mm. And mean that remembering how good God has been in the past and anticipating how good God will be in the future and how good God is right now, even though it might not look like what we had come to expect. That seems really important in, in my community right now. The other thing that's in this text that I keep going back to is that this whole text takes place without the actual building Mm -hmm. that used to signify the presence of God in the community. The first half of this text, there's just an altar. The second half of this text, there's just an altar with a foundation. There's no actual building there. And often in my tradition, we have gotten attached to our buildings And a lot of us have buildings that are too big now for the communities that are actually there. And they are somewhat in disrepair. Not everyone, but a number number of us. And this text is a reminder that the essence of the thing is the worship. Mm -hmm. The essence of the thing is not the building in which worship is done. Mm -hmm. Worship looks different, of course, now in 21st century Christianity than it did in 6th century Judaism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the point is the same. The worship of God is the thing that matters. Where you do it and the condition of the place where you do it, that is not what matters. The people are together. The people are collaborating, old and young together, joyful and sorrowful alike, worshiping God, declaring God's graciousness, and waiting to see what God is going to do next. That's a beautiful message. A hard one to inhabit, I think, for very long, but very much in this text and I think very much appropriate for the season of Advent as we anticipate what, what might be in the future. Mm. That's beautiful. I love that. All right, Amy, next time we are in the fourth Sunday of Advent, which is also Christmas Eve day, which is it's a little complicated <laughs> this year. In the uh, So we'll be in Luke chapter one versus, I don't know for what, for sure, for what. It's the story of Zechariah. The narrative lectionary gives us verses 5 to 13 and 57 to 80, but you know how we do. <laughs> so who knows Who knows exactly where we'll be. And then the, there's also that same day, of course, is Christmas Eve, which is the Luke 2 text that's so familiar to Christian mm-hmm. readers of the Bible. So that's what's up for us. So we'll see what we do. So this marks the end of our time in Hebrew scripture for a while, huh? It does, until September, alas. Until we meet again. Hebrew Bible. Until we meet again. <laughs> I will say this, we have not really announced this yet, but we are doing a series this summer on creation care. And so we will undoubtedly be back in the Hebrew Bible for that series. But so maybe instead of September, maybe like mid-May. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. 
In the meantime, we'll spend a lot of time in Mark starting in a couple of weeks. Good. Well, I look forward to it. Me too, Amy. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash biblewormpodcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time when we'll read the announcement of John the Baptist's birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's told in Luke 1, 5-25 and 57-60. Till then, keep on digging.